Good morning, and thanks for being here with us at Trinity this morning. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here, and today it's going to be my privilege to open God's Word and lead us in our study of it. So I would invite you, if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are also some in the seat rack in front of you. We'll have the text up on the screen, uh, or you can grab a listening guide. If you didn't get one on your way in, you can slip your hand up, and Dave will make sure you get one. It's a piece of paper, has the text in it, some space to take notes, follow along with the message. Uh, Matthew 13, we're going to be jumping around a little bit this morning, uh, looking at verses 24 through 30 and verses 36 through 43. So if you've been with us for any length of time, you know we love the Bible here at Trinity. We believe it's how God shows himself to us. And so most often, we just work through books of the Bible sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, uh, usually going just straight one end to the other. Well, this week, we're going to do it a little different, as we kind of have been uh, over the last few sermons. Because we're in a section where we're looking at Jesus' parables, right? He's telling these stories to teach us spiritual truth. And once again, this week, we have the parable. And then he goes off on another parable and then doubles back and gives us the explanation for the first parable. So this week, we're going to look at the parable of the weeds in verses 24 through 30. And then Jesus' explanation for what it means in verses 36 through 43. And then next week, we will double back and look at verses 31 through 35. So 13, 24 through 30 is where you can join me this morning. And as you get turned there, I want to open this morning with some lyrics from one of my favorite songs of all time. It goes, there's a man going round taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. Johnny Cash, when the man comes around. If you haven't heard the song before, go home and, and have a listen to it today. It's, it's one of my favorites of his. It's one of my favorites of all time. It's a sound that gets the blood, or it's a song that gets the blood pumping, right? It's, it's one that, that makes you sit up in your seat a little bit as you listen to it. Because the notion of Jesus returning to earth and settling scores and putting things to right and bringing things to the way they should be is an exciting prospect. We look at the world around us we see injustice, we see suffering, and the, we yearn to see someone who can deal with it justly and forcefully. And in many cases, we've experienced our own suffering. We've experienced our own injustice, and we yearn, we desire for someone who can deal with that justly and forcefully. And oftentimes, as we think about the prospect of the man coming around, of Jesus coming and setting things to right, we get excited, we get all worked up, and we desire to get in on the action. I can go around and take some names. That'd be fun. And sometimes that attitude can seep into the church. Sometimes we have a zeal for the purity of the church, and we want to see it shine like it should. Sometimes we can be so eager to look around and identify just who the true Christians are. And, and we see people who we say, they're imposters and we need them out of the church so the church should be what it's supposed to be. It'd be better off without those people. Sometimes that looks like the old folks wanting nothing to do with the changes of a younger generation. Sometimes that looks like the young folks with little patience for the old folks and their way of doing church. And we think if it was just our way, everything would be fine, everything would be right. Sometimes it's the conservatives who see a heretic behind every little difference in doctrine. Sometimes it's the progressives who deem anyone with traditional views to be an outdated bigot. 
And we think if only the church was all like this, everything would be better. The man's going to come around, he's going to take names, and I'm going to help him out by getting a little bit of a head start. Well, today we're going to look at a parable that makes a couple of things very clear. One, there is someone who will sift through the people who claim to be a part of God's team and identify all the imposters and the pretenders who don't belong. And he'll send them to a destiny that is stark, that is dark, and that is sobering. There is a man who will be going round taking names, and he'll decide who to free and who to blame. That's one truth we're going to learn today. But the second truth we're going to learn today is that man, it ain't us. We're not the ones who are going to decide who to free and who to blame. And when we do, when we take that upon ourselves, we risk friendly fire. We risk tearing down the very people that Jesus is building up by his spirit and in his image. So this is a story today about weeds and wheat. And a gardener who is so concerned about the well-being of the wheat that he's willing to suffer the weeds for a while instead of losing a part of his harvest as collateral damage. So let's look this morning at verse 24 of Matthew 13 and hear Jesus' parable of the weeds. Jesus says, or the text says, He put another parable before them. This is Jesus saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds along the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then jumping ahead to verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and we'll study it together. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask, just as we sang earlier, show us Christ. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us, that we might shine all the brighter in his image in this world that you have made. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. 
All right, so we're talking again this week about sowers and seeds. If that sounds a little familiar to you, you might remember that last week we were looking at uh, the parable of the sower, about one who sows seed in his field, one who scatters seed around and who uh, puts it on this soil and it, it grows a little bit and then gets choked out by thorns and on this soil and the rocks get it and then on, good, on some soil and the birds snatch it away and then sometimes it falls onto good soil and there it grows and it reaps a great harvest. And this week we're looking at another text that deals with seeds and sowing and soil. So it's similar in some ways, but it's very different in its focus. Right in the parable of the sower, the focus was on the type of soil that the seed hit, right? And we learned something about our hearts by looking at the soil. What kind of soil is there in your heart? Is it, is it soil that is good for the seed of the gospel to grow in? Or is it choked out by the weeds, the cares of this world? Is it, is it a rocky soil where nothing can really get down and take root? So where last time we focused on the type of soil, this week the focus is not on the soil, but on the seed. On the fact that the sower sows good seed. And, and what happens is that seed grows in a world where it's not alone, where it's mixed in with that which doesn't belong, with these weeds. So we see this parable starting off with a sower sowing in his field. Right? Verse 24, he goes out, he sows good seed in his field. And we see that as he sows, the, wheat is, or the, the seed is going to spring up. It's going to become Weed, this is good seed. It does what seed is supposed to do. It, we're not worried about it landing in the wrong spot. When he sows the seed, the seed grows. And down in verse 37, as Jesus begins to explain the parable, he says that the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So it's Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who goes out and who sows the good seed. So Jesus tells the parable of the guy who sows good seed and then later on, and note from verse 36, he's explaining this in a smaller group. He's teaching it to the crowd, but when they get into a smaller group later, it's the disciples who come and say, let us know what, what, what's the parable about. And that's the context in which he's explaining it here. So he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And this is where we meet our first truth I want us to take away from the text this morning. And that is this, Jesus's word makes sons of God. Jesus' word makes sons of God. When Jesus sows his seed, it's good seed, and it produces the intended result. The sower goes out in the field, he sows good seed, and wheat grows. And, and in fact, that expectation is so clear, we're going to see some surprise from the men in the parable when there's something besides wheat in the field. We'll get to that in just a moment. But Jesus' word produces its intended effect. He scatters seed, and wheat grows. He spreads his gospel message and sons of the kingdom, some sons of God, pop up all over the place. We see that happening throughout his ministry. He transforms people by his word. And this picks up a truth that's made crystal clear over and over again throughout the Bible, that God's word produces its intended effect always. His word is powerful, his word is effective, and it creates change in the lives of those who he plants it in. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return but water the earth, making it burst forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, 
but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God is saying through Isaiah, just like rain falls, and if you've got grass planted in your backyard, that never-ending battle to actually get grass to take in your yard before your dogs tear it up, maybe that's just me, um, but when you, you have grass planted, it needs water. And so when the rain comes, the water causes the grass to grow. It does what it does every time. And Jesus is saying in the same way that rain waters the earth and makes things grow, my word makes people grow. It accomplishes the purpose for which I sent it. And we get clarity of that purpose in John 1, 12 and 13, where it says, He, being Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That Christ, when he comes and scatters his gospel, it gives and creates sons of God. It remakes us in his image. Jesus' word makes sons of God. It is effective, just like the sower's good seed is effective in causing wheat to grow in his field. Now here at Trinity, we believe this. We believe that God's word changes lives. We believe that God's word grows God's people. And we've staked our, our everything on that. We've staked our whole strategy in building and planting a church on this truth. We believe that when Jesus' message is proclaimed, it will bear fruit. It will bring about God's intended result. And so we believe the most important thing that we can do as a church isn't to have the most amazing band, isn't to have the most charismatic speaker up here, isn't to have all the best programs. The most important thing we can do as a church is to proclaim God's word in a way that's clear, that's compelling, and that's comprehensive, right? We're going to take our Bible straight, no chaser. We want it all the way, all the Bible for all of life, all of Christ for all of the church. And that's why we take up the bulk of our Sunday morning gathering unpacking the Bible, right? If you were to look at how long our service goes, the big chunk of it is taken up by this time right here. That's not because me, Dave, and Todd just like to listen to ourselves talk. Like, we're aware that can become a little bit tedious from time to time, theoretically. We do it this way because we need to hear the Word of God. We need to have it unpacked. We need to understand why it matters to my life, to your life. That's why when we gather in small groups during the week, we apply the Bible to everyday life. We don't just talk about ideas. We want to know how do we take these truths and live them out? Where does it meet you in your, in your joys and your sufferings and your sorrows? And that's why we hope our relationships with one another are marked by speaking God's words to each other. Right? Our mission in terms of God's word doesn't end on Sunday morning or on Thursday night at community group, but we are to be encouraging one another. We're to be building each other up. We're to be rebuking each other from time to time. We believe that Jesus' word makes sons of God. Do you? And if you do, what are you doing to scatter gospel seeds? If the power is in the word, if the power is in the seeds, what opportunities has God placed in front of you to scatter Jesus' good seed in the fields that you walk through in your life. It's going to look different for each and every one of us. 
But if the power is in the message, if the power is in the good seed, that should change the way we handle it. It should change what we prioritize, how we live. Jesus' word makes sons of God. But there's a problem in the parable. And the problem is this, that Jesus' enemies live in his kingdom too. This world where Jesus is building his kingdom isn't just home to sons of God. There's other plants growing in the garden that shouldn't be there. Look at verse 25. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him. Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So while the sower is away and his men are sleeping, an enemy comes in and sows bad seed in the field right there alongside the wheat. So we've got good seed that's down, and suddenly now without the sower's men realizing it, there's bad seed mixed all in right there with it. And it's not until the plants mature that it's evident that the bad seed has been sown, right? If you look at the parable, when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. That's when the servants are tipped off. Not when it's just seed, not when it's just starting to come up, but when the grain is there, when it's about harvest time, that's when they realize, wait a minute, that shouldn't be there. Something's gone wrong. And it prompts them to go to the sower. The weed that is in view here in Jesus' parable is likely uh, a type of ryegrass that is almost indistinguishable from wheat until it matures. I've got a picture. If you could put this up there for me, Nick. So this is wheat on the left at, at a young stage of its germination when it's just starting to mature. And then this on the right is one of the weeds, which some versions of the Bible call tares. Uh, darnel is one of the terms used for it. But you'll notice at this young stage of development, I mean, I'm, I'm no professional farmer by a long stretch, but they look pretty similar to me, right? You'd be hard-pressed if those on the right were intermixed with those on the left to be able to tell what's what. It's not until they're fully mature and almost ready to harvest that you start to notice the wheat has strong grain on it, whereas the weeds don't really have much of anything worth using. But at the early stages, they mix right in. It's difficult to tell the difference. And so... The men who are tending the field for the sower, they're puzzled by how their master's good seed could have produced this mixed bag of a crop. And so they ask the sower, how could this have come about, right? Didn't you sow good seed in your field? Because that's not what's out there, just good plants. How are there weeds? And the question is answered quite bluntly by the master. He says, an enemy has done this. Now, this piece of the parable is pretty straightforward, but in case we need additional clarity, Jesus is very clear to us in verse 37 and onward what this means as he's giving his explanation. So verse 38, he says, the field is the world. The good seed is sons of the kingdom. That's what we've already seen, right? Jesus' word creates sons of the kingdom. But the weeds are sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So... Jesus sows his seed. While he's away, the enemy comes in, the devil comes in, he sows his seed, and it, his followers, his people, his sons, sprout up right there among the good seed. Verse uh, 39 continues, the harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
So here's the picture that's painted for us. As Jesus's kingdom is being built, his people live in it, but they're not alone. Mixed in among them are his enemies as well, right in there all together. You've got some wheat and you've got some weeds and they're all intertwined. Now, on the one hand, this really isn't teaching a groundbreaking truth that we don't know. We understand this because all of us live and have lived all of our lives in a world that's fallen. You don't have to look around very close to see something's not right with this world that we live in. There are things that happen. There are people who do things that just don't belong. Suffering, injustice, oppression, you name it. You've seen it. You've experienced it. We live in a world with suffering, pain, and evil, and we understand that's how the world is. It's a mixed bag. There's good and there's bad mingled all in there together. So this notion that there are weeds among the wheat isn't something that we didn't really already know, didn't already understand. But I want us to reflect on it for a minute because there's a couple truths that we can learn through this piece of the parable that I think will be quite helpful to us as we live now in this world of wheat and weeds, a world where everything is all mixed together. First thing we need to keep in mind is this. Jesus is certainly at work in our world, right? We see that very clearly. He's sowing the good seed. The sons of the kingdom are growing and they're flourishing. We major on that fact here at Trinity. I hope you don't have to spend too much time around us to see we believe this is true. Jesus is at work. This isn't just some old dead faith for 2,000 years ago. This is real and vibrant and it matters today for me, for you. But Jesus isn't the only one at work in our world. So we got to talk about the devil this morning. And we, we have a tricky relationship with the devil in most churches today, I think. Because it's not something, he's not someone we spend a whole lot of time talking about and unpacking from the Bible. And so it can lead us to fall into one of two traps when we start to think and talk about Satan, about the enemy, about the devil. And those two traps, I think, are, are really easy for people in our churches, in our church, in our lives to fall into. There's two ways that we can think of the devil. Number one... We can assume that he's this big bad who is having it out and fighting it out with Jesus every day and the fate of the universe rests in the balance. Like they're two sides of the same coin. You've got Jesus here, you've got Satan here, and they're trading blows every day. And we're waiting to see with bated breath who's going to win on any given day and who's going to win in the end. Religious philosophers call this dualism. The notion that they are equally powerful forces of good and evil and the world is caught in the middle as they fight things out. Alternately, we can go and fall into the other trap. And the other trap says, Satan's not a big deal at all, actually. Like, he's, he's, Jesus is bigger than he is. Jesus is better than he is. Jesus has already beat him. So we really don't need to worry about him. We don't need to worry about the devil. We don't need to talk about him. We don't need to think about him. No big deal. And so we just go on our merry way. And that approach also has the perk that it fits in really well with polite American society where even though most people in our country today believe in God, belief in the devil is often seen as childish or superstitious. Like, you don't really believe in the devil, do you? So we have these two ways that we often think of the devil. Either we give him too much importance or we give him not enough attention. And the Bible doesn't let us go down either one of those paths as it teaches us about who he is. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So this text is saying that because we're, we're people who live with flesh and blood bodies, Jesus took on a flesh and blood body so that he could destroy the devil through what? Through death. Jesus' death is something that has already taken place. He's already done what he was going to do to destroy the devil. Satan is already beaten. We're not waiting for the whole thing to play out and see who gets the last punch in. Jesus threw the knockout blow a long time ago. Matthew 12, 28 through 29, which we looked at just a couple weeks ago. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, this is Jesus speaking when he was accused of casting out demons by the power of demons. He says, if that's the case, or if, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Right? He uses the, the imagery of a, of a burglar, of a robber. It's like if you're going to go and rob a strong man, you don't just go in and start grabbing the nice diamonds. You, you go and bind the strong man. You tie up and deal with the strong man. Then you can plunder the house. Like if you're going to rob John Cena or Mike Tyson you're going to want to deal with John Cena or Mike Tyson before you start taking their stuff, or it's going to end with a very, very bad trip to the emergency room for you. Jesus says, I have come in to bind the strong man, being Satan, and now I'm going to plunder his house. In what way did he bind the strong man? Through his death. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection, breaking the power that Satan has over this world. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. So Satan's not someone equal to Jesus fighting it out with him for supremacy of the world. He's beat. He's done. We're, we're, at this point, think of it like a football game, and it's 42 to nothing with a minute and a half left to go in the game. The ending is not in doubt. We're just running out the clock at this point. But it's important to remember that when you're watching a football game and it's 42 to nothing with a minute and a half to go, the ending isn't in doubt, but those kind of games can get a little bit chippy from time to time. And that's what we find with Satan. He's not someone we can just overlook or pretend is a non-factor because the Bible warns us to pay attention. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then 2 Timothy 2, 25 through 26, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from a snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. He's talking about people in the church who fall into the devil's traps, get dragged away, and saying God may bring them back. He may grant them repentance. But notice what drew them away was the traps that the devil lays. The devil is beat 42 to nothing, we're running out the clock, but sometimes guys who are down big and can't change the scoreboard like to sucker punch people. And that's what Satan's doing. He's looking for someone to devour. He's looking for someone to drag down, and so we need to be watchful. So trap number one is we're so worried about Satan that we think everything in the world is done by him and he's all-powerful and all-knowing. He's not. Jesus has him beat, defeated, and done. But then don't fall into the second trap that says, well, so who cares? Because Jesus says to us, be watchful for him. Be watchful for his traps and his snares. And the most common trap and snare that Satan uses is this, pride. Pride coupled with a questioning of what God has clearly said. That's what he'll do. When Satan's going to attack you, 
It's not going to come with all the, you know, the Hollywood trappings, if you think of something like The Exorcist. When Satan attacks you, what he's going to do is he's going to play on your pride, and he's going to cause you to question what God has clearly said. That's his most common trick. It's his most common play that he likes to run. And it's also his oldest one, right? Genesis 3.1. Satan said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God. What's he do there? Did God actually say? And then he quotes not what God actually said, but he twists it a little bit to make it seem even more ridiculous. He gets people to question God's word. Did God actually say? And then, but see what God's doing? He's trying to keep you down. If you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. He plays on our pride, right? You're smarter. You're, you can handle this. God's trying to keep you away from things which will make you happy. That's Satan's playbook. And he continues to run that same play with us today, right? Did God really say this? Did he really tell you that, that he's just trying to spoil your fun? Right? You're big enough to handle this. You can do what you want to do. You can chart your own path. Satan is at work in our world, and we need to be watchful. We don't need to be terrified and preoccupied with him, but we need to be watchful for his traps, for what he tries to do to trip us up. So that's one truth we need to learn from this parable. Jesus is at work, but he's not the only one. Satan is at work as well. But there's another truth we need to see from this part of the parable as well, and that's this. The sons of the devil are not just those who live lives of flaunted immorality. When we hear that phrase, you know, the sons of the evil one, you know, you might have a lot of different ideas in your head of what that looks like. You know, is it a Hells Angels biker gang guy out there and doing everything you can think of that's against what God says? Well, often they don't look quite like that. What we see here, remember the picture of the weeds and the wheat, often the sons of the devil can look almost indistinguishable from Jesus' people, especially at first. They can be difficult to tell the difference because some people's sins are very out there and they're flaunted all over the place, but some are much more subtle. And when we're all affected by sin, when sin and evil and wickedness is something that's part of all of our hearts, not just bad guys, good guys, like we're all bad guys, we're all fallen, we're all haunted by sin, sometimes A failing and struggling Christian looks like an enemy. And a son of the devil with all his externals cleaned up can look a lot like a friend. And because of that, it can be difficult to tell the difference sometimes. And that's where the parable lands in its third act. It wants us to understand that Jesus is much better at sorting out who's who than we are. Jesus will sort out who's who, not us. Look with me. At verse 39, I'm sorry, we're going to jump up to verse uh, 29 first. We realize that Jesus' gospel will produce people in his image as it does its work in the world. And we realize that Jesus' enemies will be mixed right in there with him. And so naturally, that might prompt the same question from us sometimes that it prompts from the men in the parable. When they find out, okay, there's weeds and there's wheat and they're all in there together, what do they say in verse 29? The servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? You want us to go take care of this, Jesus? This guy came and he put weeds in there in your wheat. We'll go clean all the weeds out. We'll go get rid of them right now. You want us to go sort things out? You want us to go bring justice to your world, Jesus? You want us to bring purity to your church? 
And those are all admirable aims, right? The things that we as Christians should work towards. But Jesus warns us that that zeal in rooting out the bad weeds can often result in damaging or destroying good plants. What's his response? No, verse 29, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Instead, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the sower says, no, I don't want you to go and root up the weeds. Let them go. Let them grow right there with the wheat. When the harvest comes, we'll deal with both. At the harvest time, it will be very clear what's wheat and what's weeds. And we will take my harvesters, they'll come, they'll gather the weed to be burned, and they'll gather the wheat to go into my barns as a good crop. And what does the harvest symbolize? Let's jump down to the explanation of the parable where Jesus says in verse 39, the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. On that day, when Jesus returns, there will be no doubt about who's who. Jesus will see perfectly. And when he comes, all the plants will be pulled up. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The lawbreakers will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there is sorrow and there is suffering. And this brings us to one of, not one of, to the vital truth in my mind that we need to take away from this text. If you get nothing else from my sermon this morning, remember this. Because we believe that Jesus will one day set everything to rights, we don't have to try to set everything to rights here and now. Because we believe that one day Jesus will set everything to rights, we don't have to worry about setting everything to rights here and now. We can go on our way. We can let the weeds be without losing sleep over it at night because we know that somebody who knows things far better than I do is going to take care of it one day. And we can rest and trust in his perfect justice instead of trying to execute justice and vengeance ourselves. This can be a real temptation for us to want to get in on the action ourselves, right? First off, it's a temptation when we look at the world at large, especially when you see so much suffering happen. And you probably have asked, in fact, I would dare to guess that every one of us in this room has asked at some point in your life, God, why do you let this evil go on? Why don't you just deal with it now? Come in, white horse, fiery sword, the whole deal. Show those people who are mistreating and oppressing and abusing people, show them who's in charge. Get rid of this evil and this suffering. It's an understandable yearning when we see suffering, when we experience it ourselves. But what this parable reveals to us is at least part of the answer to that question of why don't you take care of this now, at least part of the answer to that question is that rooting out evil in the here and now would hurt many of the people that Jesus is in the process of redeeming. Evil isn't just those guys over there. Evil is me. Evil is all of us. All of us have the things in our past 
that we just as soon weren't there. All of us can probably look to things that we did this week that we wish we didn't do, the words we wish we didn't say, the thoughts we can't believe cross through our mind. When you look at the wheat and you look at the weeds, the, under the surface, the roots are a jumbled mess. They're all intertwined because we're all fallen people in need of God's redemption. And if we go trying to yank up weeds, you'll probably find you got some roots from some wheat that you rip out alongside of it. You never know what God is currently doing in the life of that person who you're just sure has no business being in the church. First Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Talking about the promise that God's going to come, that Jesus is going to return and set everything to rights. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that should all should reach repentance. He's saying, people are looking and saying, why is Jesus taking so long to come back? Why doesn't he deal with this now? And what Peter says is, God's not slow as you think of slowness. The reason he's slow is so that people will repent. He's giving people time to turn to him, to come to him, to find salvation from their sin. The reason he's slow is for us, out of grace. Romans 2, 3, and 4. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, you suppose you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, here's the kicker, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His kindness, his patience is meant to bring us to him, to draw us to repent. That's at least a good chunk of why not now. Why he waits, why he says, no, let the weeds grow. I'll deal with it at the proper time. Quote from my favorite movies, the Lord of the Rings series, that comes straight out of J.R.R. Tolkien's book. The character Gandalf, the wise wizard, says this to one of the characters who's, who's wanting to take out somebody, and somebody who looks pretty evil, and he says, I, I wish we could just go ahead and, and get rid of him. And Gandalf says this, he says, many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then don't be too eager to deal out death and judgment. For even the very wise cannot see all ends. So the next time you find yourself wishing fire and brimstone on your enemies, or even on those who you're pretty sure are God's enemies, leave the wrath to God. He will execute it perfectly, justly, with righteousness and clarity. And you do what he's clearly called you to do. Well, what's that? What am I supposed to do? about my enemies and God's enemies. Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. All right, now if I get that, I'm not to, to take vengeance and justice because God's gonna take care of it. Okay, so what do I do? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do you respond to your enemies? How do you respond to God's enemies? You show them love and compassion. You show them Christ. Show them the kindness of God is meant to lead them to repentance, that they need to come home to Jesus just like you have. But even more subtly, this can be a temptation even in the church. 
Because sometimes we look around and we think we found a litmus test for, for telling wheat from weeds. And we see people who think, they're a true Christian, but I don't know about that person. And before you know it, whether explicitly or subconsciously, we're assuming that we know who the true Christians are. That we know who's in and who's out. That we know who's weeds and who's wheat. Now this is part of the reason that we purposely cast a very wide doctrinal net here at Trinity. If you look at our doctrinal statement that we have out there on our website, it's the Baptist Faith and Message, it's intentionally broad. We don't get down into the details of every last idea of doctrine because we want Trinity to be a place for Christians of different stripes to come and join together in praising God, hearing his word, doing his work. Trust me, Pastor Dave, Pastor Todd, and myself have a lot of very finely tuned and tightly held beliefs about all sorts of different issues, right? The age of the earth, what we think about the end times, the use of spiritual gifts, we could go on and on and we could have debates about various positions and have a grand old time. But when we decided on Trinity's doctrinal statement, we decided to keep it broad. Because ultimately, what makes someone a Christian isn't the purity of one's doctrine, but faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you might find yourself thinking, whoa, so purity, purity of doctrine doesn't matter? That's not what I said. If I had said that on Twitter, by now I'd have like 10 subtweets like, hey, Pastor DJ doesn't care about doctrine. We need to get rid of this guy. But nothing could be further from the truth. What I'm saying is secondary matters of doctrine are not what separates wheat from weeds. So they shouldn't be what separate us from each other in the church. Even when that makes things messy and complicated. Hey, if everybody in the church is exactly alike on every issue in every way, then it's going to make things really easy for us to get along together, Right? Differences make things messy. Differences make things hard. Not just differences in doctrine, but differences in personality, differences in strengths and weaknesses, differences in likes and affections. They complicate things, but that's okay. Jesus says, let the weeds and the wheat grow together. You don't worry about trying to tell who's who. I'm going to take care of that part. Now, maybe you find yourself thinking, but yeah, but does this mean we just ignore sin and don't worry about it even when it crops up in the church? What about church discipline? We believe in church discipline, Right? Jesus commanded it in Matthew 18, we believe in it, and we'll practice it. And when we get to Matthew 18, we're going to spend a lot more time talking about what do I mean by this? What is this process by which we identify and rebuke sin when we see it in the church? But for the time being, consider this, that Jesus in Matthew 18 gives us a means to, at the end of a long and careful and passionate and detailed process, operate as if someone we thought was wheat is actually a weed. And we think, by this point... We're pretty sure you're a weed, and so we're going to treat you as such. But note that even there, even at the end of that long, painful process of church discipline, an end that in my experience has been thankfully rare, the end result is not, okay, we identify you're a weed, so we're going to treat you like garbage. The end result is we say, how are we going to treat this person? What's Jesus say in Matthew 18? Treat them like we would a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, assume they're not a believer, that they're not a follower of God. How do we treat people who aren't believers? We preach the gospel to them, and we invite them to come to Jesus. If you think, you, if you, if you think this person that I know, I think they're a weed, I don't think they're really a follower of Jesus, then you need to be shining the gospel to them in any way you can, not sitting here giving them the stink eye because of whatever it is that makes you doubt their salvation. One of the implications of this parable is that outside of the scope of the kind of clear, continual, unrepentant sin that Jesus says in Matthew 18, pursue that with church discipline. Outside of that scope, 
We should be very wary of trying to tag wheat and weeds in the local church based on other factors because doing so risks friendly fire. Do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. When you try to gather the weeds, you risk harming, hurting, and destroying wheat in an effort to get at it. You risk harming, hurting, and destroying good, genuine, but struggling Christians. And the stakes are too high for that. When you're dealing with souls of people created in the image of God, the stakes are too high. Keep in mind what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That would be better than causing someone to sin. Now, we tend to apply that text to false teachers, to people who twist God's word and draw people into sin. And that's absolutely true. It is applicable to false teachers. People who twist God's word... It's a serious problem. We should be wary and mindful and on guard against them. But that's not the only piece of people that risk this. Bible-believing Christians can cause people to sin when they tear down other Christians and treat them like they're not brothers and sisters in Christ. And if the stakes are that high, we need to be very, very careful when we try pulling up weeds when we are pretty sure, based on something somebody said on social media, mm, they, they're not on my team anymore. Remember, the gardener is going to come around. Jesus is going to deal with all of this perfectly. Don't mistake what I'm saying in any way as saying, sin and evil really don't matter, just ignore it and go on with your life. They matter so much that when Jesus comes and deals with them perfectly, the fate of those who stake their lives on sin and evil, knowingly or not, is going to be terrible, right? The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God takes evil very seriously, and he will deal with it forcefully and finally. Our job is not to get a jump on that process. Our job is to warn people against the wrath that is to come and ask them to find hope and salvation in Christ. And the more you tear them down, the less likely they're going to be to listen to that message. And the less likely a watching world is going to be to take that message seriously. The end of this parable is stark. It presents a future that is uncomfortable where God deals with sin and with sinners. And we believe it's true. It doesn't mean we like it. We wish we could just kind of soft pedal this part, right? And you just get rid of the hell and judgment and all that stuff. But this is what God says. And so if we're loving to people, we're going to warn them with tears in our eyes, passionately pleading with people, turn and trust in Christ. Because the end otherwise is stark. It takes me back to the song. The second verse, when the man comes around, the hairs of your arms will stand up with the terror of each sip and each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? God is kind in delaying that day and his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance.
So will it. Will God's kindness lead you to repentance? If you find yourself not trusting in him. Will God's kindness prompt you to draw others to repentance instead of trying to tear them down when they don't line up on your team exactly? Do you believe in the power of Jesus' message to transform lives? All right, let's go back to the beginning of the parable, to the seed, the seed that gets scattered, and good crop grows up because of it. When Jesus scatters his seed, when he sends his word out, it creates sons of the kingdom. It does its work. Do you believe that? And does the way you live reflect that? Are you putting God's word, God's message, Jesus' gospel out there as much as you can in your words and in your deeds? Are you on guard against the devil? Not just in the form of the blatant immorality that we usually associate with his work, but in the subtle pride and questioning of God that he often clothes himself in. Are you on the lookout for his traps, knowing that his, his people are mixed right in there with God's? The weeds and the wheat, they're all in the same bunch. They're all intertwined. And then finally, do you trust Jesus to sort out the weeds from the wheat when he puts all things to right? Do you trust him to do that? Are you trying to take the gun in your own hand and get a head start? Are you living with that day fixed in your mind as a reality and ordering your life today accordingly? Right? If we believe that Jesus is coming again, that he will set everything to rights, that there is a man going around taking names, it allows us to rest and not try to take that mantle up for ourselves. The end of days matters. It matters today in how you respond to Christ, but also as to whether you see that day as a reality and are ordering your life today accordingly. Right? If I know it's going to rain tomorrow, I'm probably not going to wash my car today because it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a waste of time. When we know things about the future, it changes the way we live in the present. So if I know that Jesus is going to come and put everything to rights in the future, I don't have to worry about it today. I can rest knowing that he's got it. It keeps me from feeling like I've got to go around taking names here and now because a day is coming. When the man comes around, hear the trumpets, hear the piper, a hundred million angels singing. Armies are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling, voices crying. Some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray.